Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, this is Andrew Friedman from Tokeland.com. Jimmy Bradley from the Red Cap. And this is a front burner special report that, Jimmy, I'd say we're about as excited for this as we've been for anything. Absolutely. Uh, About a year ago, we taped an interview with Jeremiah Tower, who is the subject of a new documentary that's being released on Friday, April 21st in New York and Los Angeles. Hopefully it'll find its way into other theaters after that. It'll definitely find its way to CNN in good time. Uh, And uh, we spent an hour with the great Jeremiah Tower, with Tony Bourdain, who executive produced the film, and with Lydia Tenalia, who directed the movie, uh, and is also one of the founders of Zero Point Zero, who do Mind of a Chef and some other great chef-related entertainment. Yes. And for those of you who don't know, Jeremiah, of course... uh, it's probably best known as the chef owner of Star's Restaurant, which was a seminal American restaurant in San Francisco uh, that opened in 1984. Prior to that, he had been uh, at one time the chef of Chez Panisse. Um, and uh, it's it's a movie that we really like a lot. Uh, we'd encourage everybody to see it uh, when and where you can. Uh, just one or two notes since this was taped a year ago. Uh, we mentioned in the interview that Jeremiah's book, Start the Fire, which is an updated version of his memoir, California Dish, uh, was going to come out in fall of 16. Obviously, that did not happen. The book, however, was just released on April 4th. So yeah. people should pick that up and, and enjoy it. Uh, and if you hear us talking about certain things in the interview that seem a little odd because we're talking about being at the Tribeca Film Festival, uh, that's because it was last year when the movie premiered there. Yeah, probably almost to the date. Almost to the date. Yeah. So with that... Here's an hour with Jeremiah Tower, Anthony Bourdain, Lydia Tenalia. Please enjoy. Legendary chef Jeremiah Tower took over the kitchen of Chez Panis in Berkeley, California in 1972 and helped bring the restaurant to national and international attention. In 1984, he opened his landmark restaurant Stars in San Francisco, considered by many of today's industry leaders to be one of the most influential restaurants of its era. In the early 2000s, after shuttering stars and penning his memoir, California Dish, he vanished, like Kaiser Sose. Jeremiah Tower has reemerged in the last few years, taking to the speaking circuit, writing a new edition of his book, California Dish, now titled Start the Fire, to be published by Anthony Bourdain's line of books under the Echo imprint in fall 2016. He's also the subject of a new documentary, Jeremiah Tower, The Last Magnificent, which is what brings us together today. Here to discuss the film, Jeremiah's place in culinary history, and related matters are three people who need no introduction, but we will introduce them anyway. Anthony Bourdain, who among many other things is the executive producer of the film, welcome. Lydia Tanaglia, director of the film and co-founder of Zero Point Zero, which produces Tony's show Parts Unknown, Mind of a Chef, and other well-known programs. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
and the man himself, Jeremiah Tower, the subject of The Last Magnificent. Welcome, Jeremiah. Thank you for inviting me, too. Also, a note to our listeners on the topic of spoilers. We don't really believe that there's such a thing as a spoiler in a documentary. Uh, much of what takes place in this movie has been covered in Jeremiah's book, and other books for that matter. Uh, we do believe a little bit in revelatory spoilers, so we'll try to stay away from those, but we're not going to worry about them the way we did would with a scripted narrative film, uh, all, of which this is to, all of which is to say, enter at your own risk. Um, so we thought we'd like to just start off talking about the confluence of events that brought us all here today, that brought this movie into existence. Um, you know, Jeremiah, I've talked on this show in the past. Um, I've been writing a book about the American chefs of the 70s and 80s, and when I first came into the project, and this is sort of the way you're referred to in the film early on, um, you know, I sort of had this vision that I was going to have to probably travel to Mexico and meet right. you on a beach somewhere right. to get an interview with you. You were sort of off, what we would call off the grid. Yeah, we should have gone to the beach. <laughs> um, but in the last few years, I mean, you really kind of reemerged in a big way. You're on, you're on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, I mean, I myself have seen you. I've seen you at a conference in Chicago. I've seen you several right. times in New York. I saw you at a Stars reunion dinner in San Francisco. What sort of prompted you to come out of whatever you would term it exile or reclusiveness and to sort of jump back in, and you used to use a phrase we interviewed once, riding the tiger, uh, right. referring to being out there in the public eye. And What kind of made you want to get back on that tiger? Well, no tigers on the beach, you know, so uh, then I started diving with sharks, so I figured, you know, once I mastered that, it was time to get back into the really dangerous sharks, which are human beings in the culinary world. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Tony and Lydia, what for you... Tony excluded, by the way. <laughs> What was the genesis of this film and, and your interest in, in Jeremiah and telling this story? I had never met Jeremiah. Um, I'd never eaten at Stars. But for my entire cooking career, um, the name Jeremiah Tower was sort of this constant, constantly coming up. I'd work with people constantly. would say, oh, yeah, this is, a, this is a tower dish, or this is tower-like, or an homage to Jeremiah Tower. So many of the... Anytime there was anything that was non-French food, if it was American food, it was either a direct lift or in some way influenced. So the name kept coming up, coming up, and coming up. And then I read Jeremiah's book, and I saw this uh, film as a way to address an, historic, uh, an historical injustice, uh, an oversight, um, a, a, a record that needed, you know, Really, really needed correcting, um, but also as a ripping good story. I mean, it is a great character-driven um, story with incredible uh, and controversial and uh, uh, provocative events. When you say, well, first of all, just to contextualize this a little bit, when you yeah. say when you were coming up and you would hear that name, I assume you're mostly talking about in, on the East Coast, you would hear the name Jeremiah Tower. Well, this is where I was, you know, anywhere I worked, and I worked my entire career cooking was on the East Coast. Right, that's what I'm saying. But and for someone who was in California early on, you were mm -hmm. hearing the name. It was rippling all the way to, to where we are today. It was the backbone of, I mean, I, and I wasn't even aware of how much. I mean, so many, of the, uh, so many of the things that I've benefited from in my career were essentially pioneered by Jeremiah. I mean, the food... The recipes, the presentation, the style uh, of dining space in which you enjoyed these things, the open bar, the whole celebrity chef phenomenon. I mean, not to put a fine point to it, but Jeremiah, as I find of saying, was really the first time that 
the dining public wanted to have sex with the chef. Right. <laughs> and, and that's been I missed very... that. He <laughs> was the first fuckable you know, chef. That's true. You uh, missed up... it or you miss it? <laughs> Both. <laughs> up to that point, the, the, you know, when you picture the chef, it was, you know, the dumpy, you know, European guy with a... It was Chef Boyardee, basically, and he was there to serve. Um, you didn't want to see him. Right. Uh, maybe briefly to say, yes, you know, whatever you want. You want the mixed grill, but with the sauce from the fish, yes, of course, we're only too happy. This was... A complete change in that that uh, equation, and obviously, you know, um, when the public started rethinking of the chef in that way, this was very good for business. It was good for chefs everywhere. It was good for me personally. I'm sure we all got laid in some way, with more frequency and with with better quality because of Jeremiah. We'll talk about my commission uh, later. <laughs> uh, I want to come back to the historical correction that you referred to in a minute, but uh, Lydia, for you, what was sort of your, before this project, what was your sort of knowledge of Jeremiah? Um, what was your interest in him? And, and how maybe did that change through the course of making this film? Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, the first time I had heard his name was, and it was some years ago, I was having lunch with Ruth Reichel, former editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine, and we were talking about potential subjects for the series that we have called Mind of a Chef. And she said, you know, and we were talking through various people, and she said, you know, who'd make a really good subject for Mind of a Chef? You know, Jeremiah Tower. I had not heard his name before. Ruth, you know, gave me some context. But again, and she said, but he's, I don't think he's in the States anymore. I, I'm not quite sure where he is. I think he's in Mexico. I'm not quite sure. You know, he's not currently at a restaurant. So it was something I, it just jogged my memory the other day, that was the first time I'd really heard his voice. Uh, the next time was really, um, you know, we were considering documentary projects to pitch to CNN, and Tony brought um, Jeremiah up. He said he had just finished reading um, California Dish, and it was a fascinating story, and let's, let's see if this is one of, you know, a couple of ideas we can pitch to CNN. Um, so I read the book. It's, it is a ripping good story. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be in reprint called Start the Fire. Great, great story. I mean, just even if you know about restaurants or dining or not, it's still a really great story. And I think my first impression was it's going to, it'll be a good biopic about an interesting restaurateur who had a very storied career. And yeah, let's see what we can do with that. I think when I met Jeremiah for the first time, though, and we started talking and um, because there was a sort of two-part thing that we had to do with CNN. They wanted me to go out do an interview with him to see if there was actually some real character here that we could follow, and we did that. Um, and I think that's really the first time my perspective shifted from this will be an interesting biopic to there's, an, there's a real film here to make about, you know, not just a chef, restaurateur, had a storied career, but, a, you know, very artistically driven person, you know, who had great triumphs and, uh, you know, great tragic falls and everything in between. And it, it's like the story of the artist. And I think that's when it really became fascinating for me. Tony, can you just speak, you, you've referred to this. When I interviewed you a while ago when I first heard about this project, you would mention, you, I think you'd use the term, term historical correction that needed to be made. Yeah. Can you define what that correction Look, is to your mind? Um, this is not a slam on Alice Waters' role in history. I see it more, what offended me, I guess, is the willingness, the ease with which Jeremiah was written out of history uh, by lazy 
um, disingenuous journalists who had access to Alice Waters and everybody, journalists, lazy journalists like access. So that they stuck with a version of events they knew to be untrue because it was just easier and more convenient and their own sort of, uh, the longer they told this altered version of reality, the more it became impossible to back down from, the more their reputations were built on. I was there during the golden times when it, when it all happened, when St. You know, Alice of Berkeley created food as we know it. Um, you know, it is a more complex, um, a much more complex story. And it really bothered me to see otherwise respected journalists or respectable journalists lazily repeating this sort of mantra that they knew to be untrue. They knew to be much more, frankly, an interesting story. And the reality doesn't really speak badly of anyone. You know, there's a lot of important things were done by a lot of people back then. But right. for Jeremiah to be like sort of written out, because, well, let's face it, he was and is an inconvenient man. And I think it's one of the reasons he's been sort of, I, I, I always romantically thought of him as kind of a, America's culinary remittance man. You know, back in the days, you'd have the disgraceful son of a wealthy British family would, you know, send them off to, uh, you know, send them off to Jamaica and keep sending money as long as they stayed in Jamaica and didn't embarrass the family. Much the same way it's like that. Everyone just kind of wished he'd it stayed away because if he shows up and starts talking at all, people are going to ask questions like, or they'll be reminded of of something that they're pretending never happened. That's interesting. Jeremiah, I saw you nodding vigorously when Tony was saying this. I mean, it is interesting how um, politics play into, and I don't mean politics, national politics, I mean pol interpersonal politics play into how history is written. You know, you're a big fan of a, a guy named Bruce Martyr uh, who created the West Beach Cafe right. uh, in, in Los Angeles, which I know was an inspiration to you. You know, and Bruce back in the day didn't, as I like to say, didn't really play people's reindeer games. You know, he didn't do PR, he didn't do right. benefits. And he's a virtually... Even though he today runs six very successful businesses in Los Angeles, he's not a known person. It is sort of amazing, and I, I'm assuming, but maybe you could just comment. I'm assuming this is why you were nodding just now. It, it, it is interesting how, how interpersonal relationships and politics sort of play into how history gets written. Well, once the first article, let alone the next 10 or 15, come out that repeat that article, then it's like changing the Ten Commandments. You know, I mean, there are decades. That's why it's nodding vigorously when Tony was talking because the story was told and then it lazy journalism they just repeated and repeated and repeated and then then how do you how does anyone contradict um, what is now written in stone as far as Bruce in Los Angeles I mean the West Beach Cafe which was never written about was actually the first of the new style the California style the look you know and I've you know uh, I've with you and talking with you, I was, until I was blue in the face, I kept saying West Beach Cafe. And the other one I've repeated, of course, is 1959, The Four Seasons in New York. Sure. Naming farms. I mean, those guys were crazy. They, they had a beefsteak tomato uh, sliced at the table side, you know, <laughs> but it had the name of a farm on it. So that, I mean, that, that's just one of my favorite stories about restaurants is that slicing a tomato at the table is just take takes real balls. <laughs> and I think it's what's interesting also is if you look at the, the menus at Chez Panisse before Jeremiah and you look at them immediately following his arrival, 
it's kind of case closed. And and what's interesting as well is that there you talk about the politics of food, and and it is even more political now. There were a lot of people who were really angry about and felt betrayed by the the change in the restaurant that happened because, you know, Jeremiah created a scene and created a made it a different type of a restaurant, one with a national an international profile, uh, an incredibly popular one. To their credit, they have stayed popular since. And history, of course, belongs to the victors, to the people who are still around <laughs> to tell it. But uh, it, it, it's funny that there were people who were still really bitter about this, this other path that he took the place uh, on instead of this little Pagnol-esque, uh, you know, uh, quasi-French bistro. It was, uh, you know, these were outrageously creative, ambitious, uh, unfettered imagination, uh, classic re uh, referencing uh, menus. And th that's what made it the most exciting restaurant in America. Yeah. You know, the, the ad that I uh, answered in the, in the newspaper that I was shown, it said, we want somebody who knows everything from Elizabeth David to Fenampoint. So I went, uh, what does that mean? You know, but anyway, okay, I love Elizabeth. You know, and I know, I know her books, and Fenampoint, my hero, I know his books, book. Um, so I can do that, you know. I mean, but of course, they'd never heard of I mean, they had no clue who Fenampoint was. I mean, this is the man who made his staff cook a gratin of crayfish for three years before they got it right. And he made them eat it every day. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there were five ingredients in that uh, gratin. Um, he also knocked off a magnum of champagne before noon every day, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> and there were three more after that. Well, that's why he was my hero, not really the gratin of crayfish. <laughs> let's, um, Four let's, magnums a day. Oh, my God, how let, wonderful. Let's pull back for a minute to the movie itself. And Lydia, I'd love to just um, you know, hear from you on this. Um, I can only imagine, this is, movie runs about just a hair under an hour and 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, I can only imagine how much footage do we even know i mean hours wise hundreds of i mean can there you was a cut it? of the film that i was very passionate about that was around 2 hours and 20 minutes and uh -huh. then you know cnn kept slapping me on the wrist saying right. no 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 got to get it down to 90 minutes and it right. became a negotiation at that point i'm like no no G give me give me 100 and you know 120 no you have to we went back and forth back and forth we finally settled on it's, it's around 102 minutes but there was there were a beautiful, beautiful scenes in there. I mean, you know, oh, the, the, the French plantation scene. The, that was a. Oh no, that was Apocalypse Now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Same story. It was. It was Apocalypse. It was. But you know, there was. You know, J Jeremiah was very influenced by his Russian uncle, um, who, 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 you know, really taught him so much about cer certainly exquisite old world dining. So we had done a, a magnificent recreation of the experiences he would have at this uncle's house, you know, with blinis and caviar and uh, kind of butter dripping down the arm. And there was, there was a lot of really beautiful scenes like that that really brought texture to these early memories. Um, a lot of that had to, to, you know, ended up on the cutting room floor, unfortunately. But I think, you know, the film maintains the essence, I think, of how powerful those early memories were and in, in, in how formative they were in, you know... Um, in, in, in his idea of, of food and, and presentation. A lot of, a lot of what, what the challenge of the film was uh, capturing the importance of, you know, um, 
a lot of the a lot of your life, Jeremiah, was spent apparently as a as a, a boy and a young man in these grand hotels and grand spaces, uh, ocean liners, um, alone, uh, surrounded by beautiful things and impeccable service, and that that the your your attachment to those things and that environment, um, trying to capture the the what it was about that 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 stayed with you and resonated throughout your life, I think was something that Lydia did really, really well visually. I mean, there's a recreation in the film of uh, a deck chair experience, you know, and on the Queen Elizabeth and yeah. the Queen Mary, I would go up again, you know, everyone up, my parents were doing something else, so I was by myself, and I'd go up onto the uh, sun deck, and there would be the deck chair with a little place where to put a card and it would say master tower you know slid into the thing so I'd sit down on my deck chair and and a steward would come up with a blanket and he'd tuck me in and then he'd wheel up a trolley with you know hot consomme served in Limoges cups and everything I was thinking for fuck's sake I mean <laughs> how could it possibly get better than this you know yeah. <laughs> so when you when you when you've been through that, I mean, it's stuck in my mind is that whatever I do, I need to recreate the brilliance of that moment. Tony, uh, I guess as someone who, who never met uh, Jeremiah before the, before the film, were there, were there some big surprises that uh, came out of making the film? Big surprise about Jeremiah? Um, the writer John Birdsall uh, wrote this terrific article called uh, Jeremiah Tower, the, the Invincible Armor of Pleasure. Jeremiah is a tough interview subject to crack, and I think you just saw sort of an, an example of that because he's talking about a lonely moment on a another lonely moment in, of childhood as a very happy one. You know, he's remembering the Limoges china and the beautiful consommé, but the fact is he's alone, knocking about on this big boat without any friends, and mom and dad aren't around. So that was a surprise that 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 that. That armor is so so thick and and deeply felt. Um, I think his ability to envision, to read a menu from 19th century or early 20th century and imagine who's in the room, what they're like, what the room smells like, is terrifyingly story. brilliant um, and exciting. Um, I mean, I think if you've read the book and you're aware of the legend, you. You know that he's devastatingly handsome and manipulative, and uh, uh, charismatic. Charismatic. Arm arm. that he's one of these guys who you can walk. There, there. Are, I've known if only really a couple of people like this in my life. I'm pretty sure Jeremiah to this day could walk into a crowded restaurant or any any crowded room and say, "Get me a drink immediately," and around half the people in the room will instinctively rush off to get him a drink, whether they know who he is or not. He has that yeah. ability. That that. Oh, that's great. Uh, in terms of making the film, I mean, I'm just, I'm curious, I'd love to hear from all three of you on this. You know, the movie, you said this going into the project, Tony, that, um, you know, it's just a great story. You could take, uh, it does not just for foodies, this, this, this personality profile uh, on display in this film is fascinating, right? Um, you know, for me, it's very interesting to be sitting here in a room with you talking the way you were just talking about Jeremiah, who's sitting three feet away from you, and that effect is magnified exponentially on the on a movie screen. Um, so I'm wondering, hey, Jeremiah, I know we're sitting here. You just saw this movie yourself three or four days ago for the first time. Um, 
I'd love, first of all, to hear what your reaction was to literally seeing your life go by in an hour and 40 minutes. And then I'm curious to hear from Tony and Lydia about what it was like getting so intimate with a subject that you're making this film about. But Jeremiah, from you first, what was the experience of watching this movie like for you? I don't remember. I took a painkiller before I uh, <laughs> saw it. And then I had three Mart uh, Manhattans. So uh, when I was sitting with Lydia having the Manhattans, and we're like, uh, and I said, what just, I don't remember anything about the movie. <laughs> did you two watch it together? We did. Yes. yes. Wow. Yes, he told but me. But I was so agog. I can't think of a better word. I mean, my mouth was hanging open because there's footage in there that I haven't seen since I was eight years sure. old, you know. Sure. And uh, some of it I had never seen before uh, from that era. But also, then there are all these people that I've known, you know, for 40 years um, giving their opinions about me. And I thought, well, why the hell didn't you say that 30 years ago? <laughs> anyway, it was all wonderful, but I was just literally my mouth hanging open. But was it, is it totally comfortable for you? I mean, I, I, these, this will be sort of the revelatory things that I guess we'll consider spoilers. We won't talk about them. But there are people in, that, in the film uh, who both, I guess, you'd probably consider friends and some who you'd probably consider maybe acquaintances and some maybe you're not that fond of. But, you know, there's people basically psychoanalyzing you Oh, the whole, uh, the whole movie in the is. movie is yeah. that a, just a comfort? Is that what is that like for you to see that? That was weird. That was weird. But I mean, let me go back to the very beginning. Our first meeting in San Francisco, and I met with Lydia, and I said, "Okay, I'll do this." Um, I mean, Tony's way more intelligent than I am, so anything he suggested, I figured I should do. <laughs> it was a great idea, and then I met Lydia, and I liked her a lot. But we sat down, and I said, "There, are, I have two demands. One, that we take the high road with Alice." And two, that I want absolutely nothing to do with the movie, its content or editorial or nothing, zero. Because the one thing I'm not going to do is second guess the movie or its questions or its moments or anything. If I do this at all, it's just going to be, you know, fling the closet door open. Yeah, and I will say, Steve Ranian, who cooked for you in, uh, at Stars, uh, we saw each other in Minneapolis, where he lives, at, a, at an opening party for a restaurant there. And he told me that you had actually been in touch with him and said, tell them everything. Don't yes. hold back. Yeah, there's no, I mean, why bother? Why do it if, you know, otherwise it's just another editorial? I mean, I did that for, for decades, you know, controlled the press about stars. Yeah. Uh, did you learn anything about yourself watching the movie? <laughs> Uh, lots of things that I've successfully denied over the years and will continue to do so. <laughs> no, no, I, you know, well, I can't get wait, wait to get back to the beach. Let, it put, let me put it that way. <laughs> okay. Lydia, I'm going to go diving with sharks right after this. Okay, so first of all, just sitting down to watch the movie, I would have, I would have assumed otherwise. I would have assumed you'd send him a link to a, you know, the movie or set him up in a screening room and just kind of wait to see what kind of email no, or phone I call. To, I wanted to drop it on him at the last minute. What after was that he, experience like for after you? After he was already here in New York because I think I thought if I send him the, the link and he's in Mexico, he actually may not get on that plane to come to the premiere. I wasn't sure. You didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to expect. Because it was, it's so... It's so this is very it's personal. It's very naked it's very, and it's... Well, I think, I think just to go back to something Jeremiah said... You know, he's for so many years been such an, a, a consummate curator of his own image and his own press. And I think you you hear that in the beginning of the movie. You know, there's a there's there was for many years a very very public 
Jeremiah, and then there was a very private Jeremiah, and not too many people, I, I would say very, very few people, really understood or knew that private side of Jeremiah. I think it's rightly so, a, a part of his life he kept very, very private. Um, and, you know, he knew how to, 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 to cajole and play with the public. Um, but then there was this other side, and I think that was part of that initial conversation that we had, that this, this really just can't be a, you know, a fluff piece about your great career as a restaurant chef. Like, we really have to dive deep and, and talk about the person behind all of these great things. Where did that person come from? You know, what were his formative experiences? You know, are you, well, are you willing to subject yourself to that process? And I think to his credit, he said to me, I think at this age, I can withstand a few chinks in my armor, which I will never, <laughs> never forget because he just looked me straight in the eye and that's what he said. He said, I think also, I can. The three of us have mastered fluff by now. No point doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the only two reasons that I came to New York to see the movie are sitting right here opposite you. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, I have one filmmaking question I'd love to ask, and then we'll go to a break and come back and maybe talk a little bit about stars. Um, you know, it's to me, it's, and I'm not a filmmaker, so tell me if I'm wrong. You know, there, there was a decision made, a creative decision to have reenactments or dramatizations in this film. Was that something you planned to do at the beginning? Was it something that you... Um, did at all hesit hesitantly? Was it? Um, how did that decision come about to do that? Because it seems to me that the circumstance, a lot of it's portraying Jeremiah's early life, which is pretty extraordinary, and it, there, it's almost fantastical, and probably was it, to a young boy living this life of extreme privilege. It probably was like that, but it seemed to me like there was a very fine line that you must have had to walk from a creative standpoint. I mean, uh, Lydia, Lydia needs to answer this, but I know that from our very first conversation on this subject, that we were talking about long, lots of camera movements, sort of lavish or loving slow pans over napperies and tables, uh, you know, uh, cutlery and naval, uh, a table service. Um, hotel, uh, the, the hallway, the empty hotel, uh, empty hallways of grand hotels, these are, need to be represented visually. Yeah, I mean, I would just add the idea of recreations. I, there was never any hesitancy about that idea or that choice. I think it was what is going to best serve the story. And I think at that time, interestingly enough, we did not have access to or didn't know existed that archival footage of Jeremiah's youth that showed up about two-thirds of the way, interestingly enough, through post-production. There was a box that was unearthed in someone's basement. Wow. And so that came to us very late in the process. I didn't have access to that. So I had these stories that I had read about in the book that I'd talked to Jeremiah about. And the, the decision was... That, that part of his life was so important. It was so formative. It was so, um, so much an anchor to what he was literally and figuratively able to bring to the table you know, later on in his life that we have to bring that to life in the most beautiful way. Like archival, black and white archival photographs and you know, uh, news clippings are not going to do it. You they almost, to, they would make it smaller. It would make it smaller. Like yeah. You need to feel the richness of being on the Queen Mary and sitting on a deck chair. You need to feel the richness of a little boy sitting in a restaurant 
being served the most incredible old world menu. You need to feel that richness. And I think that that an almost we needed to communicate an almost a near fetishization of of these objects and these spaces because this is a story of a guy who, as one of the interview subjects says, who's really whose life is a struggle against. The, the vulgarity of, of crushing mediocrity. His whole life has been to make things, to create this magnificent world, this this uh, uh, this barrier against the non-magnificent. Right. <laughs> and we needed to communicate the feel as, you know, a hand going across. The romance of it. Uh, you know, a the nice table of cloth. It. Perfect yeah. word. The romance of, you know, how that romantically sat in his mind, his memory, because I think when it really, you know, it came a, a, a point where he had to, to, to you know, um, when he got to Chez Panisse and he had to bring forth, yeah. he had that world that he could easily tap into and yeah. access. And it's like the green, it's the, it's, it's the green light in Gatsby. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's, yeah, it's right, sort right, of yeah. the same yeah. thing. You know, how do we, how do we richly yeah. bring that to life? And recreations felt like the best way to do that. Great. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. We're here talking about the film Jeremiah Tower, The Last Magnificent, with director Lydia Tanaglia, executive producer Anthony Bourdain, and subject of the film, The Great Jeremiah Tower. And The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew will be right back. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The bran, or the roughage, makes up about 14% of the whole grain. It's the outer skin of the edible kernel. It contains large amounts of B vitamins, some protein, trace minerals, phytochemicals, but most importantly, dietary fiber. The germ is only about 2.5% of the kernel. It's actually the sprouting section of the seed, what's going to grow into a plant. It's usually separated during milling process because it contains most of the fat and therefore has a shorter shelf life. The endosperm is the main energy storage unit of the seed. That's where the growing plant gets its energy before it can start photosynthesizing and making its own. It makes up a huge portion of the grain, about 83%, and it's the main source that's used for white flour. When you make white flour, you get rid of the germ and the bran and just have the white endosperm left. It contains almost all the carbohydrates. It also contains protein and iron and some of the other B vitamins as well. It's kind of what you classically think of when you're thinking of flour. So all that's there when you're milling with whole grains, but when you mill with whole grains, you also get the bran, which is the kind of roughage and gives that, that's what gives that, that kind of color to it. Also gives you extra fiber that uh, helps you to be regular. And you also get the germ, which adds the fat and the flavor, which we all like from whole grains. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome back to The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. Uh, we're talking about the film Jeremiah Tower, The Last Magnificent, with director Lydia Tanaglia, executive producer Anthony Bourdain, and Jeremiah Tower. Uh, Jimmy's going to pick up here with uh, some questions about stars. Uh, yes, for, for you, uh, Jeremiah. I guess I'm, I'm curious, as a, as a fellow chef operator, there's, there's lots, of, lots of ways you approach putting yourself in business and finding the perfect space. Maybe you have the idea and you have to find the space for the, for the idea. Maybe you find the space and then you have a different idea that you fit into it. 
Um, so I guess I'm curious how much of how much of stars was was the idea or was the space you know the precursor to the idea? Well, a, a bit of both. I mean, my advice for anyone opening a restaurant is immediately chuck out fifty percent of all the things you ever wanted to do in your first or in your own restaurant. You know, they're too expensive and they don't work. Um, but stars. When I walked into the space, it. I mean, it was a mess. There were leaks and rats and yeah, from the bats movie, and, it oh seemed like God. A, quite a challenge. And um, you were the visionary. But I in saw the, the stage. You know, I want, and I hadn't re- ever thought about it until now. And I've seen people saying, "Well, it was his Queen Mary," <laughs> and you know, it's right. It's right. I mean, I gave up ideas like I wanted tableside service. Um, because there was no room. I mean, that would cut out about a million dollars worth of revenue, so that bit the dust quite quickly. Um, but the open kitchen, and, and I wanted a, a bar that was as serious as the food, um, so the space fit that, and that's what we did. So you needed a space that big, but how about, how about the challenge of the neighborhood or being on Gold Gate at that time? Uh, but it was, I saw, what I saw was that it was three minutes walk from the opera, the ballet, uh, the law court. So I figured at lunch, the lawyers would be there, uh, and the ones who had lost would be crying and drinking, and the ones who won would be yelling and drinking. I mean, everyone's drinking. So, and that turned out to be true. Um, so the law courts were there, and the city government, so uh, all the bribery and stuff went on, selling us you know, down the river at lunchtime. They were all there. And then in the evening... The, I understood the mathematical formula, which is we could get three turns a night, you know, which is because the second turn is all profit. They would come in before the 7 o'clock or 7.30 curtain and have half a meal. Then you'd get the regular diners. And then at you know, 10 o'clock, you would get the second half of the meal that the people who went to the performances uh, didn't have in the beginning. And so at some nights, we had opera, symphony, and uh, ballet. So, you know, in, uh, Star's Bar did $3 million a year at, at three twenty-five a drink. God, I wish I was doing it now at $16 a drink. <laughs> I, have to, I have to say, this is, by the way, on the way over here, I never knew this, but we have someone in the room here who actually cooked at Star's. Absolutely. Got- <laughs> well, maybe two, and one was for a much uh, briefer, briefer moment, more brief right. moment. Uh, I guess late 80s, early 90s, I was living in San Francisco briefly. My roommate, uh, Monica Riley, worked for you at, at 690 at Speedo. Absolutely. So I asked her if she could, you know, I mean, m- my point of view is... She snuck you in. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, my point of view is like, like that of Mario's in the movie, that... I needed to be at Stars. That was all I ever wanted to do right. when I arrived in San Francisco. So um, I, I, I got a trail, and I worked the grill next to uh, Tim Ottaviani one night. Yes, indeed. It was one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, the big, brash, bold, looking out in the dining room, just feeling the energy. I, I, think, I think Tim must have picked up 100 pieces of swordfish that night. I don't know right. if it was a menu item or a special. You know, I'm coming from a place that serves 100 dinners a night, and he serves 100 a one. Well, of course, the menu changed every every night. Yeah. So, and yeah. I was just so impressive and just flawless. And 
um, I guess uh, my trail didn't go as well as I wanted it to, so I wasn't I wasn't invited back. Maybe you mailed a letter. Yes, yeah, that was my maybe a, a culinary low point. But then you know a, a culinary high point would be when you when you moved to New York and you used to come visit me at Red Cat and I right, would see you at the right. bar, you know, dining right. and socializing and. That was a really great thing for me. I mean, both experiences. I think you know, maybe Thank you. a kick in the butt in the early '90s helped, and uh, right, and just really great times I had that one evening in the kitchen. Good. Um, there's, uh, I guess, Lydia. Let's maybe talk to you about this. There's, to me, it was a fascinating decision. Um, obviously, during the time you were filming this movie, Jeremiah took over the kitchen at Tavern on the Green. Um, you know, to my mind. You know, the example I gave when Jimmy and I were talking, getting ready to do this show, you know, in the, in the 1980s, Nancy Silverton and Mark Peel came to New York very briefly and took over the kitchen at Maxwell's Plum, which is all but forgotten. You know, to me, this was historically probably going to be a footnote. Almost a third of the film, and I won't give too much away about it, but you, there is a cross-cuts with other events from another time in Jeremiah's life, but about a third of the film, Tavern features rather prominently. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering, what for you was the significance in the larger picture of what was not a very terribly long period of time um, that he was at that restaurant? Well, I mean, it's interesting because right when he came to New York, which he did not tell me, by the way, we were planning to go shoot in Mexico. I was corresponding with him almost weekly. We were trying to set our Mexico schedule. To finish the filming. To finish the film. That was going to be the last bit of filming that we had to do. Um, well, you said and then he didn't tell you. He didn't tell you. About he did not tell me gig? he took the job. He didn't tell me he had moved to New York. He was already here. I didn't he was know, conversing you know. with me via email, and he was already in New York. Long story short, we were prepping to go shoot Mexico, and then I get an email from him saying, hey, those dates might have to slide a little bit. Um, do you think we can maybe push them a little farther down? I said, yeah, sure, you know, probably could push them a month or two. Right. You know, it's the last bit of business we have to do. And literally, it was like the next day I was in a meeting, my husband Chris, he takes his phone, he like turns it towards me, and he shows me the headline. Jeremiah Tower takes over as executive When it chef, broke in the Times. When it broke in the Times. And I was like, that fucking bastard. <laughs> as I said that out loud, I called what? him. I'm like, you are trying to change the ending of this film, are That's you? So what funny. was my what you- comment, though? What did I say when you called me? What? I said, don't worry, this won't last long. Yeah, that's true. Is that what you said? Uh, yeah, this is, uh, that. this is... Doomed. I said, this is like January, February. It's, Why'd you say that? Look, everybody loves a comeback story right um and whether it's a successful one or not it's it's a heroic it's always a heroic sure. uh, uh story um but tavern is of course a notorious chef killer um i um i knew patrick clark a little back in the day sure great chef somebody who i'd work with a little bit um, I'd seen around, really looked up to, and I just I remember very well when he took the tavern job. Everybody looked at each other and said, "Well, you know, that's that's not going to be a happy experience." It's it's not. Tavern holds a specific place in the imagination or in the restaurant landscape of New York. It, it, that it's, and, and I, I guess most importantly is Jeremiah is about fabulousness, and the tavern is fabulous proof. It, it can never be fabulous. It was not designed to be fabulous. Yeah. Beautiful people would never be, feel at home at, at yeah. a tavern. It's where you, it, it, it's where you bring your grandmother from out of town 
largely because you can be sure that no one who knows you will see you there with your grandmother. Right. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, it is an incredible space that's easy to, I can see the attraction. Sure. Um, you know, it's a, it is a beautiful space in yeah. Central Park, but it is a mission. It is a mission impossible, and I think the most important distinction is that New York uh, food critics feel obliged to hate the place. It's just not. It's not all right to say that there's anything good about anything that might happen at Tavern, and especially if it's a hotshot chef from out of town who were who were hostile to. We tend to be hostile to. You know, uh, from the get-go, uh, in principle, very few people, high-profile chefs from from elsewhere, can come to New York and and become loved. I can think of just a couple of examples. Maybe April Bloomfield would be one who's yeah. immediately loved. So it, I think the deck was really stacked. And if it wasn't stacked enough, I'm going to try to put this artfully. There was a meeting of food writers at a table in a restaurant in New York, where it was at the end of which one of them said to a friend of mine. We're going to murder Jeremiah, you know. You're not speaking figuratively. This is I'm literal. saying we're we're going to dis- we're going to get him. They hadn't eaten at Tavern yet, but it had had been decided at the table that they couldn't wait that they were going to put the boot in. And if you have any doubt about that, who who, who reviewed you for uh, Grub Street? <laughs> it was like a contract hit. Uh, Mike, Michael Bauer flew all the way from San Francisco to rev- for. For the first time he's ever reviewed a restaurant outside of San Francisco. I mean, he was my arch enemy, you know. Um, and the, the New York Times art review opened with the plot thickens, and I thought, what plot? Now I know what plot. <laughs> wow. But of course, I can't, I can't resist, you know. I'm a sucker for the slim chance, so that's why I took the job. So did you did you ever convey? I mean, you two were the movie was going on. Uh, did you ever say to Jeremiah Anthony, I'm like, what do you what I'm do you say? Crazy pastor, or maybe I was wrong. You know, I mean, look, it, I, I had every confidence that Jeremiah was going to make things better there than they were. Uh-huh. Um, I, it was certainly within his power, and in fact, he did by all accounts. But that was, in my view, never going to be enough. There was no way that they, that he was going to be embraced by the food writing community here, yeah. or that any chef at Tavern could be. It just ruins your street cred to, to say you there's, that there's something you like about it. Right. And and in, in his case, you know, uh, old uh, old animosities surfaced. I mean, I really think that I believe that was a hit piece in Grub Street, and uh, and it sure felt like you know, it sure looked like one. Right. But Liddy, for the question we were talking about before, in terms of how this fits into the larger picture, like where does this fit into the jigsaw puzzle of Jeremiah Towers' yeah, makeup I mean, for you? you know, Prior to Tavern, it was it, it, the film had a three-act structure, which was youth, Chez Panisse, stars, and then it ended almost elliptically in Mexico, sure. which is where we begin. And, you know, really to give the audience a sense of the incredible story journey of this very interesting and, and influential chef restaurateur. I think when Tavern happened... It filled me with panic and dread because I I knew that we suddenly were moving from a very structured type of storytelling to a very unstructured type of st- storytelling. Basically, it was it was a unanticipated verite piece of the puzzle. Yeah, you know, suddenly you go from a very I know it's this this and this and it's going to be told with archival recreations and one bit of verite. Um, shooting in Mexico to 
oh no, now we're now we're doing the great follow, unknown. Now we're doing a follow doc, and I have no idea where this is going to begin or end. But thematically, it, it fits in because it, it illustrates it's part of an overall theme about a, a man who is trying to impose grace, elegance, and magnificence on a world that is anything but. And, and ultimately, <laughs> that's what it was. That's what it became for me. You know, he was there for four months. I was I was up there quite a bit. He definitely was trying to kick me out, I'd say, more than 70% of the time. Yeah. He was pushing me away because, you know, he was understandably quite entrenched and busy yeah. and just trying to make the impossible possible. Well, I don't think this is a spoiler. I'm sorry to interrupt, but there is this one just split-second thing where he's having a meeting or in the walk-in, and... The camera's yes, outside the walk-in, bad morning. and he makes a gesture, bad morning, yeah. and the door just closes. Yeah, there was a lot of that. We've all had that conversation. Kind of, you know, <laughs> that's why we're in the walk-in, right? At one point, right? he called me a dog, you know, with a, a bone. A and female dog. A female, yes. I was a bitch with a bone, and then I wouldn't let the bone go, and da-da-da-da. Well, I think just to, just one yeah. thing I want to... What, what was really important, though, for me in the tavern shooting was I was able to see firsthand and I suddenly realized we're going to give the audience an experience firsthand of, of Jeremiah's artistry because I think up against everything Tony just described, he was also dealing with a very green kitchen. He was basically thrown literally into the fire and I watched in a very short amount of time him take control of that kitchen and, and, um, and put forth a vision, like he had a vision. We're going to do this and this and this and this. And it was very clear. His instructions were very clear. The food that was getting produced, again, a very short amount of time with tremendous impediment, was gorgeous. It was beautiful. I mean, that was my experience. I, I saw him up against a lot and, yeah. and be able to you know, change something like that so quickly. I thought how powerful an image this is going to be as part of the film to see this person at this point in his life still be able to to do that and implement that in in a you know in such a huge setting so yeah I, and again i think it was i mean as a viewer what was inter- i hope it didn't seem like i was quibbling with the decision i was surprised by it mm-hmm. but i totally understood it watching and i don't want to give too much away but there is a lot of cross cutting mm-hmm. um that um you know it, it all sort of um Philosophically, uh, you know, in terms of it, the look you're describing at Jeremiah and the way it depicts him, um, it all hang. I thought it hung together great, mm-hmm. um, but I was compl- I was completely caught off guard by it. You, Jeremiah, were just trying to say something about well, this I was, because you know I wouldn't have taken. I thought the film was over. We'd not except for you know a beach in Mexico. I mean, how difficult is that? Um, or jumping in the water with scuba equipment. I mean, that's easy. So I thought the, the film was over. I wouldn't have taken the job if the film was midway because then it looks like I had taken the job to make something sensational for the, for the film. And that's why I kept trying to you know, kick them out after you know, a couple of hours because I said, it looks like that, you know, the, the reason I took this job is that it's staged. And if the staff, if the kitchen staff thinks that, they're not going to take anything I say seriously. Right. So that's when I kept saying, get out. Get out now, Lydia. Get out now. <laughs> but it's also, isn't yeah. it? I mean, there's a line uh, Tony has in the film about, you know, all chefs are control freaks. Uh, you say that in the context of him taking the tavern job. It seems to me also this was uncontrollable by any of you, but including you, Jeremiah. Like, to have someone following you, you know, whereas in the, the past is you know more or less who's out there and what the We've footage had two is. chefs there since. Yeah. 
But Tony's right. I mean, it's uh, absolutely impossible. <laughs> we live in a world... Jeremiah has been a man, very much a man of his time. It created um, a whole era. Um, but he's also a man out of time in that a lot of his sensibility goes back to, to uh, a cuisine ancienne in that period. Um, but also, look at the world we live in. You cannot... If you're running for president in this country right now, you cannot admit to eating arugula. Right. You know, this would right. be a shameful... That's a, saying you're a communist, basically. That, you know, it's it, iceberg only. You know? Right. This is the world we live in now where sort of confessing to a love of grandeur and, and elegance is, uh, is a really a liability. It's a shameful, horrible thing you almost have to apologize for. Um, and um, I think you kind of see that at work here. And also the staff available for restaurants in the United States have changed. I mean, you hear all the restaurateurs talking about it. Um, when I got there, I mean, there was no one who knew how to make chicken stock. So I thought, oh, shit. You know? <laughs> wow. Okay, let's get to work. Um, but there was a, a month and a half or two months of put that cell on the line. You know, there'd be an order and we'd fire the main courses and a cook would pull out his cell phone because it was ringing. I'd say, put that cell phone away. What did the hell do you think you're doing? And he'd look at me as like a, from a different planet. Yeah. Which, of course, it turns out I was. Yeah. And probably not unique to that restaurant, but no. Jimmy, you could speak to that better probably than anybody. But that's you, you hear about that all the time now. Times are tough, you know. the The workforce isn't what it used to be. I mean, we used to stand in a kitchen. I mean, I've heard you speak about things like this, Tony. You know, we we take a lot of punishment, but we 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 wanted to be there. It didn't matter how many hours we worked. It didn't matter what we were being yelled at or anything. It was this is what I want to do, and and and, and feeling the energy and and feeling the buzz from it, and really wanting to participate. Now you know, there's things like you can't talk to me like that, and I have to be able to use my cell phone, and like I have rights too. Only and we're doing this long enough to get a TV show. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, chef, when when because do you know, of you? Yeah, exactly. I get questions like, chef, your 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 garmache, uh, cook might say, chef, when do you know you need to hire a publicist? Kid, you make salads, not just yet, right. you know. When you get out of the hospital, that's yeah, when. when I'm done with you, <laughs> punk ass. Um, Jeremiah has a line that I've I've heard you say it many times. I've heard people who've worked for you quoted to you. There's three sides to every story. Your side, the other person's side, and the truth. I think I'm getting it right. Um, you know, it's striking to me, um, and, and I, I take your point earlier that you didn't want it to be a hit on, on Alice, but, you know, Alice is not in the film. I assume she declined to be interviewed for the film? Yes. I mean, we actually had an interview set up with her. Um, there was a, a, a bunch of interviews that were going to take place in San Francisco, and Alice agreed to do an interview, so that was going to be part of that trip. Um, and really, at the penultimate moment... Um, she declined. Uh, she said her schedule changed. Um, so I said, you know, no problem. We'll work around whatever. If we have to come out again, not a problem. And I think at that point it just, it turned into a series of back and forths. We texted, I had a phone call with her and, um, I think ultimately she just decided this was a story that was, you know, too emotional for her to participate in. So she... Um, did she, she phrase it in those terms? She did, yeah. She did. You know, I think... She, there were other things said on the, on the phone call, sure. but I think she she just felt like that um, she didn't feel comfortable participating. Right. So, um, you know, I, I really tried, like 
the bitch with the bone that I am. I really did try. I pursued right. her. I pursued her and pursued her, and then finally, um, I you know her um, her assistant said, you know, Alice stands by her original her original feeling, and yeah. she declines to participate in the film. So, but I think everyone who sees the film will be fascinated of how she's uh, portrayed in the in the film. I mean, I think in the, in the three sides, it's probably right down the middle. You know, I mean, it's close right. to. And I, I, I don't think the film minimizes her role. I just think her role is different than the way it has been lazily portrayed. Right. Uh, uh, no less important, but different. Yes. I mean, for years I've been saying to journalists, look, that's not the story, but get the real story. I mean, she's had this major, major contribution. But that's not what you're writing about. You're just repeating the same old shit, you know? I mean, she created, I mean, she created the space where the revolution happened. And, you know... Who else would have hired you at the time? Nobody. <laughs> yeah. Or put, 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 put that Looney Tune ad in the paper. And the fact is, they're still open. Yeah. And they're still loved. I mean, that's a huge accomplishment. 40 years. 40 Hello, years. 40 plus, as actually. a relevant re- restaurant of quality. Yeah. Um, there's no taking away from that. And yeah. I would say the summary at the end of that chapter of the film is is really fair. It was it was a moment where these two people really created something together. She had created this small restaurant that Jeremiah stepped into, and you know the synergy between her front of the house and 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 really what he created in the back of the house, you know, is what what. Uh, as Waxman says, you know, catapulted Chez Panisse up over the edge. So it, you know. Yeah, it's funny. When I, I, yeah, when I started working, the first interview I did for this book I've been working on was with Jonathan Waxman mm-hmm. when I was trying to get my head around how I wanted to approach it. And the first two names he mentioned to me, which probably isn't really that extraordinary, but it was Jeremiah Tower and Alice Waters, and he, both the coming together and, you know, almost in this big bang effect way, the separation and what happened, you know, when you went on to do stars and then how, how shape and he's developed over the years. Let's just say, go back to what Paul McCartney said about his relationship with John Lennon. It was a war in the press. Right. Um, so we're getting down to our last few minutes here. Uh, uh, first of all, the, there's a new edition of California Dish with this new title, Start the Fire. Can we just briefly, how is... What, people who have read California Dish, what's what, what sort of areas does the, the new edition or new material in that book address? Well, first of all, I went through every word in the book and you know rewrote it in a sense because sure. there was way too much 19th century Dickensian prose in the first one. Um, and this one actually got, uh, what do you call it when you go, someone goes through it? Edited. It's not just edited, it's copy edited. Yeah. So this is clean for the first time. Um, and there's also about 25% new material. Um, I mean, the, the book opens. I can say what the first sentence is, can I? Yeah. The, uh, a chef in New York was at a symposium here in, uh, in the end of 2015, and he opened his talk and said, Okay, what the fuck is California cuisine? So my next line is, I think I should answer that. Yeah. <laughs> and, there, and there's the new book. Great. Um, there's a line in the movie. Um, you, you quote Proust when you talk about um, going to tavern, work while you still have the light, right. and you wanted to see if you still had the light. Right, exactly. I love. I still love that. Line what from uh, you came away from that experience? I mean, you you have not just this book, but another book coming out. Um, you've got uh, what else? What else is going on for you as we uh, 
move into 2016? Well, I mean, that's a fr- why. Why did I do this movie? I mean, when I got to New York before I saw it, I was gonna, the first thing I said to Lydia. Now, remind me why we did this damn thing again. You know, <laughs> <laughs> how could I be so uh, to do this? But um, now I know. But you know, I was trying to think. So, what's the next chapter? <clears throat> But there was so much noise from the past, I thought, you know, the movie is perfect. It wraps it all up, puts it in a package, and then it's over. As I said to Lydia, all I could think of was a car with all the cans attached to the back of it, just married, you know, and you drive off in it with this incredible noise, and then you turn the corner as soon as you're out of sight of all your guests and friends, and you cut all the cans off and drive away quietly into the future. That's this, the film. Great, great. Um, well, on that note, we'd like to thank all of you for being here. I can say for just me and Jimmy, I have to say, and I don't know if this is uncool to say this, but I can't think of three people we more admire in your respective disciplines. Uh, so to have you all on here is, is really meaningful to us. Uh, Lydia Tanaglia, Anthony Bourdain, Jeremiah Tower. Uh, you can follow uh, The Front Burner at Chef Podcast on Twitter and look for us on Facebook at The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. And would like to thank today's engineer, Jack Inslee, for trekking to Midtown to make this happen. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you all. And uh, we should also say, I guess we haven't said it, but we both really love the film and highly recommend it to people, whether or not you're a quote-unquote foodie or in this business. Uh, as Tony likes to say, it's just a great story. With that, I'm Andrew Friedman. I'm Jimmy Bradley. We'll see you back soon on The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.